Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. For those of you who are joining us for worship here in the house this morning, those of you who are worshiping with us from your house this morning, we're grateful for all of you and thankful for your being with us this morning and uh, glad that you're here. There's so many of you decked out in the reds and the pinks today. Guys, some of you got I, I was told that this one, this one wasn't red enough, so I'm going to have to start over and try to, try to do better. But, uh, you know, today is Valentine's Day, and um, it's a day in which we, we set aside an opportunity to celebrate love and, and affection. Um, but, you know, I was thinking about it earlier this week. Um, sometimes we use the word love, and it's, it's often used. It's not often used correctly. I was thinking about this young little first-grade girl that was invited to come home with a friend, and she went to her house and to eat dinner that night and to play. And so the mom of the, the girl there in the house asked the little girl, said, well, I'm, I'm fixing dinner and, and I'm going to prepare some vegetables. Do you like, do you love broccoli? And she goes, oh, yes, ma'am, I love broccoli. And so, okay, well, so they fixed the plates and set it down. And at the end of the meal, the mom looked over on the little girl's plate and the broccoli was still there. And she asked her, I thought you said you loved broccoli. She goes, oh, I do, just not enough to eat it. I'm afraid that some of us in our language and when we use the word love, we're sort of inclined to use it in the same way the little girl used it. We love things, but just not enough to, to actually make us do something. It's not enough love to actually push us toward an action that would follow up with that. I'm grateful that that's not the way that the Lord loved us. In fact, what I would say to you is that the love that God has for us is defined in a different way. The Apostle Paul probably gives us the greatest definition of love that we'll ever find, and we know where it comes from. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Listen to the definition of love that the Apostle Paul gives us. He says, love is patient, it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It's not resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Now, while we most often hear those words at a wedding, that's many of you probably had those words read at your wedding. Uh, I would suggest to you that the greatest display of the love that the Apostle Paul writes about there in 1 Corinthians 13 occurred at Calvary, when in his love for mankind, God sent his one and only son into the world to die in the place of sinners, just like you and just like me. In fact, Pastor Ted even mentioned this verse earlier, and I will repeat it for you now. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, we read this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I would suggest to you that that is the full display of what love, true love, is all about. What we can say about this is when we see Christ, we see what love truly is. It's not a love that uses the word flippantly or, or, or as a means of convenience. It's not a love that says, sure, I love you, but not enough to sacrifice for you. It's not a love like that. No. As Jesus says in John 15, verse 33, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. The love that Christ has for sinners like us is displayed in the fact that He willingly gave not, not flowers, not, not candy, not, not jewelry. Christ gave of Himself. He gave Himself to be sacrificed for sinners like us. 
So let me encourage you today that as you, as you express your love for others in your life today and as you receive the, the expressions of love from others who express it to you, I hope you will reflect on the love that the Lord Jesus has demonstrated to you in giving of himself for you. I hope that you will take time to consider the love that God has shown. And I hope that you will ask yourself, have, have I received his love by trusting in him? Have I received his love through the simple act of placing my faith and in him and in him alone? What I want you to know is that trusting the Lord and exhibiting faith in Christ really is going to be at the, at the very center of what we're looking at this morning as we, as we conclude our study in the book of Habakkuk. So if you've got your Bibles with you and they're not already there, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3 as we look at the final verses there once more. We read them and studied them briefly last week. I want us to look at them a little more clearly and, and in depth this week from verses 16 through 19. I mentioned that last week, Toward the end of last year, I really, the Lord began to stir me up for these verses. And I looked and really were looking forward to the Lord allowing me to preach from the verses that I'm going to preach from today. But he, he slowed me down. He, he put the reins on me. In fact, from a number of things that happened in my life personally, but then also just for the way that I, I sensed his spirit moving in me, uh, I, I, I really felt compelled to preach through the entire book. Of Habakkuk, and I'm I'm supremely glad that I did because I want you to know from a personal standpoint, this has been a very rich study for your pastor. It's been a very good study for him, and I have thoroughly uh, benefited from it. But from comments that others have made to me and, and along the way, I, I believe that it has probably been a study that many of you have benefited from as well. And so it, it really just uh, reaffirms my conviction. Uh, that a clear commitment to the study and the exposition and the application of God's Word is the ministry to which I have been called. And, and I, I want to further say that I believe that that, is the, that should be, continue to be the commitment of this church family, is that we gather ourselves together to open God's Word, to study it, and then to, to understand exactly what it says and then to apply its truths to our lives and that is something that I hope that we as a church family will remain committed. That being said, I just want to recognize that this prophetic book of Habakkuk has really done a big change. It's made a, there, there's been a lot of happenings that has gone on within, within this book. As a fact, I, I was looking, reading something that H.B. Charles wrote, and he talks about Habakkuk this way. He says it, that this book opens with gloom, but it closes with glory. It, it opens with a question mark, but it closes with an exclamation point. It's a book that begins with doubt, but it ends with confidence. It's a book that begins with a complaint, but it ends with a celebration. It begins with Habakkuk, as he says, singing the blues, but it closes with what scholars have determined to be a hymn of absolute faith. And he goes on to say this. He says this hymn is one of the strongest affirmations of faith in Scripture. And it outlines for us the dynamics of a living faith. And that being said, let's read it together. I'm just going to pick up in verse 16, read down to the very end of the chapter. Read with, it, with me one last time from the book of Habakkuk. Hear the word of the Lord. Habakkuk writes, When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops.
Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food. Though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for this day and for this opportunity that we have as your people to gather around this open book that really is the testimony of your word. And I pray that you would give us open and receptive hearts to that which you will speak to us today. Help us to hear a word from you. If we don't hear from you, Lord, we are lost. If we don't have you guiding our steps, we, are, we will end up in horrible, horrible places. The, the world in which we live in will take us through many difficult places, even as it is, but Lord, without you guiding us, without your help, well, we have no hope. And so I pray that today that, that we would find the hope and the joy that we need that only comes from you, from a right relationship with you. So I pray that you would convince us of that from your, your text this morning and that you would guide us into all truth because your word is truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I do regularly to, this morning, I'm, I'm going to kind of, my points are just hooks. They're just little thoughts for us to hang our, little, little words for us to hang our thoughts on as we work our way through. There's nothing special about them. There's not one particularly insightful thing about them, in my opinion, but they will aid us as we walk our way through this passage to figure out exactly what's going on in the life of the prophet. In fact, these words are just going to reflect some actions or some things that are occurring in the prophet's life, and it's going to help us to see the movement that actually takes place in these four verses. Um, I hope that they will be helpful to help us see how the prophet is affected by what we read today. The first pair of words that, that I want to bring to your attention occur in verse 16, and you'll notice them there on your outline. The first hook is just simply this. The two words there are trembling and waiting. Trembling and waiting. Notice what the prophet says. He says, when I heard my body trembled, my lips quivered at the voice, rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself. Now, the Hebrew word that is translated trembled there is, is a word that means to quake in fear. It, it, it's a word that means that, that, that he is greatly disturbed. Habakkuk basically says, because of what you have said to me, God, I am scared to death. Because of what the word that the Lord had given him. Now, now we remember what that word was. It occurred in chapter 1. It was in chapter 1 that God said that he was going to send that, that really fierce nation of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come in and to be his tool to conquer and to punish the nation of Judah who had disobeyed him. And the prospect of that punishment laid so heavy upon Habakkuk that he says, look, it made him shudder. He says, I can't even stand up. There's, 
There's rottenness in my bones. In other words, my bones are not strong enough for me to be even stand up underneath the weight of the knowledge of what you have said is coming. Habakkuk trembled. But he also waited. Notice what the ES, how the ESV translates the last part of verse 16. I really like it because I think it, it clarifies a few things. Habakkuk declared, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Don't miss that. You see, you see, God had revealed to Habakkuk that he was, he was sending the Babylonians. He was sending the Chaldeans, a people of a fierce, hasty, proud, arrogant, idol-worshiping nation. God was sending them to be his tool of judgment upon Judah. But he nevertheless promised, as we also studied in chapter 2, he promised that he would judge the Chaldeans. In fact, he said he would send upon them five woes that we looked at in chapter 2. So there in verse 16, what we see is that Habakkuk is fearful and he is trembling about what lay in front of him and in front of the fellow Jews of which he was a part at the hands of the violent and destructive nation of Babylon. He, he trembled at that, but we also see him waiting in confidence that God would fulfill the promises that he made to him. Now, so we see trembling and waiting. Do you know what confidently waiting upon the Lord in spite of your circumstances and the fear that is created in your life, do you know what that's called? Faith. Amen. That's what faith is. Faith is waiting on God to fulfill His promises in your life when all around you is falling apart. That's what faith is. I believe it's what, and it's what I referred to in the title of my sermon, it's, it's even though faith. Even though faith. Even though faith. It, it looks, even though the future looks bleak, Habakkuk trusted in God. That's what, that's what faith is all about. Notice that even though faith shows up again in a, in a really a clearer way in verses 17 and 18. These... 17 and 18 are the verses that, that I don't know how to put it. They arrested me. They captivated me. These are the verses that got a hold of me and wouldn't let me go. When Over Christmas, when my dad lay in the ICU hospital bed and, and it became more and more clear to us that the likelihood of him coming home was getting bleaker and bleaker. It was these verses that the Lord put on my heart. It was these verses. These are verses that, that describe collapse. They describe ruin. They describe the loss of everything in these verses. Notice, notice the first phrase. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine. Ray Fowler has described this scenario as being the loss of things hoped for in the future. And you can understand that, right? Because when you see a blossom that occurs on a tree, a blossom's not fruit, but a blossom tells you that it's gonna, that's, that's going to turn into fruit later. When you see the little bitty hard green grapes grow on the vine, those things aren't edible yet, but they are a hope. And there's a promise in them that they will grow and they will produce edible grapes later. 
when you go and you look at the trees and there's no flowers, there's no blossoms on the tree. When you look at the vines and there's no little bitty grapes already growing on the vines, do you know what that tells you? That tells you that later there's not going to be fruit. Later there's not going to be anything for you to go get. It's, it's, it tells you that you have lost hope in what's coming. Some of you in this room, I believe, probably are there. Maybe you have hopes and dreams for the future, but right now there are no visible signs telling you that those hopes and dreams are going to come to pass. Maybe you feel like saying to God, God, I just need, to, I need a little something. Can you give me, can you give me a sign that, that things are going to be different? Everywhere I look right now, it seems like it's just going to continue to go south and go worse and get worse. Can you give me something that tells me that I can, I can get up tomorrow and know that things are going to be better? Man, if you can in some way identify with that, then you can begin to identify with the prophet here who, who when he looks at his situation, he feels like he's lost all hope for the future. Notice the next phrase though. Though the labor of the olive may fail and the field yield no fruit. Fowler describes this as really being the loss of, of things that you hope for in the present. In other words, it's harvest time. It's time to go out and get what's ready and, and own the, but there's no harvest to be had. It's the things that you're looking for in the right now that you're going to try to find that you're hoping and your hope is in and yet you go out there and, 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 and the cupboard is empty. You might imagine it in your personal life like this. You get laid off after years of faithful service. You lose your job and you have no real source of income. You invest all your money in what looks like a great portfolio but then the market tanks. It leaves you with nothing. You put years into a relationship with another person and now that relationship breaks apart. If you've experienced or perhaps maybe you're living right now in the middle of some of those kind of scenarios, things that you were counting on in the present and yet you go and there's nothing there to find, then those bitter disappointments in life give you a little bit of indication of what Habakkuk is writing about here. But then notice the third scenario, and he describes it this way. He says, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. The NIV puts it this way. There's no sheep in the pens. There's no cattle in the stalls. Now, in our Western mindset, heavy you know, emphasis on meat, we probably think, well, that means there's no meat to be had. But I would suggest that the Jews were probably considering it a little differently. Because they were probably thinking of the cattle being something that produced milk. And the milk was something that could be used and, and sustained. They could produce butter from that. It was, it was, it was a, a, a necessary item that they needed was the milk and the butter that the, that the cows produced. The, the, the sheep produced wool. And that meant that they could have, they could have uh, uh, clothing to wear in the future. So really, for the cattle and the, and the sheep, that represented the reserves that they had in life. It was the things that they had depended on in the past and the things that they had set aside that would help them get through lean times. And what he says here is they go out there and there's no cattle to be found. There's no sheep. There's no reserves. Put it in today's terms, we might say this, there's no money in the bank. 
There's no more equity in the house. Friends and family have helped you all that they can. Your credit cards are maxed out. Your physical strength is tapped and the reserves are all used up. Maybe some of you can identify with that. If you can, you can identify with Habakkuk and how he felt as he looked around him. And make no mistake, what Habakkuk describes here is dire. One writer put it this way, what what is described in verse 17 is nothing short of a complete collapse of the economy. Many believe, and I'm one of them, that when Habakkuk wrote this, that had yet to occur. That Habakkuk was, was, was prophesying about something that was still going to come. The Babylonians had not yet invaded Judah, but when they did, what Habakkuk saw was what the Chaldeans did. They left a scor- They used a scorched earth policy. They, they completely left everything in ruins. And they devastated the land and the people and their economy. And the book of Lamentations makes it clear that that's exactly what occurred. But even though Habakkuk knew that was what was coming, we read those amazing words of verse 18. Read those. Yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Now, you've heard me say this many times. I think, in general, we read the Scriptures too quickly. I am not opposed to those. I was telling my kids and my wife, I am not opposed to those plans that help you read through the Bible and in 28 days or whatever, you know what the next plan is. You know, you read through the whole scriptures. I'm not opposed to those. But I am saying that sometimes you need to slow down and make sure you understand what you're reading because there's a word right there at the beginning of verse 18 that is absolutely critical. It's the word yet. In the English language, we refer to that as an adversative conjunction. Don't worry, you're not going to be tested later. But an adversative conjunctions always stop. Stop and figure out why is it there? That's an important word. It's important because it changes the direction of the text. You see, we've been heading down a road. Verse 17 takes us down a road. When you start thinking about everything that I'm hoping for in my future is gone. Everything I'm depending on today is gone. Everything I was able to depend on in my past is gone. That takes us down a certain road. Yet, Habakkuk writes, changes our direction. It moves us from sliding down that hill and moves us into another direction. And based upon verse 17, the total crumbling and collapse of everything, that would send us down the road to despair and and anxiety and depression. And frankly, who who could blame us? But then the adversative conjunction shows up in verse 18. Yet, and it's a sign that a different path may be taken. I love what G. Campbell Morgan has written. He says that, Whenever we encounter adversative conjunctions like but and yet and nevertheless, we should pause to ponder the passage in context and to ask questions like, what's being contrasted? 
What is the writer's change of direction? How is the change possible? And how does this change apply to my life? See, the reason that it is so important and it is it, it, for us to understand is because the obvious and natural expectation of how we should respond in light of verse 17 is to see Habakkuk balled up in a fetal position in the corner just trying to cover himself up and just try to see if I can make it through and absorb any, any of the more kicks and any of the more punches that are coming my way. Maybe I can just absorb it and just protect myself for a little while. That's what we might expect. But there's something that happens that we ought to see, and it's the second hook that I provided you on your outline this morning. It's the next two words that are there. Instead, what we see Habakkuk saying is, he's jumping and he's spinning. He's jumping and he's spinning. You're saying, wait a minute, Pastor, I don't see those words there. I what do you mean he's jumping and he's spinning? Well, let me point out to you that when Habakkuk says, I will rejoice in the Lord, that first phrase there, rejoice in the Lord, that word rejoice is in the Hebrew word, it's the word alaz, which literally means to exalt or to be jubilant. It's a word that, that describes the state of the act of celebration. So it, it's the process, it's, it's the way that you demonstrate your joy and your celebration in something. And what's interesting is that when, when the Hebrew was translated into the Greek in what we know as being the Septuagint, the Greek word that is used there is agalisomai. And that's not important so much as for me to tell you that agalisomai, when it's used in Greek, it literally means to jump for joy. And so the writer, the, the ones who translated the Old Testament into the Greek recognize that what, what Habakkuk is saying there is, even though all of this has happened, I'm going to jump for joy. I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to show my excitement. But then notice the parallel statement that Habakkuk makes. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. That's a different word in Hebrew. It's not alaz. It's, it's the word gil. And it really means, at it, its root, what it means is to circle around or to spin. And so verse 18 could literally be translated this way. I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around in delight in God. And I don't want you to miss that. You, you see the change that's occurred just in these, these three verses? The change that's happened is he's gone from trembling and quaking and cowering in fear to jumping and spinning in joy of what God has done. And let me just say to you that in a physical sense, that is what even though faith looks like. Even though faith, when it is displayed for people around, it looks like that. And when it is displayed, it can produce within you nevertheless joy. There's another one of those adversative conjunctions. It is, it is something that takes you down a different direction. In fact, some people call this type of joy stubborn joy or rebellious joy, tenacious joy. It's joy that shows up and will not go away in spite of the circumstances. Habakkuk says, even though everything around me fails... The fields, the vineyards, the, the herds, the flocks, I still have something to shout about. I still have a reason to dance. Richard Baxter puts it this way. He says, here's the hilarity of faith. I love this. Joy at its best with circumstances at their worst. That's the hilarity of faith. Joy at its best with circumstances at their worst. How is that possible? 
that sounds crazy. That doesn't make any sense. There's no rhyme or reason to that. We, we see people who respond that way and we think those folks are nuts. Listen, they're only nuts if they're doing that while they look at the circumstances around them. But that's not what Habakkuk was looking at. Habakkuk was not rejoicing in his circumstances. Who could? He was not joying over what was going to come and what he is experiencing in the present. Who would do that? No one. Notice though Habakkuk is rejoicing not in his circumstances, but rather in God. His nevertheless faith, or his nevertheless joy came as a result of his even though faith in God. As he looked over these verses, Warren Wearsby summarized the change that we see occur this way in Habakkuk. He says, when he looked ahead, Habakkuk saw a nation headed for destruction. When he looked within, he saw himself trembling with fear. When he looked around, he saw everything in the economy about to fall apart. But when he looked up by faith, he saw God and all of his fears vanished. What does he tell us about God? Well, in the last part of verse 18 and the first part of verse 19, we recognize two important points that we need to see that define the relationship that Habakkuk had with his God. First of all, in verse 18, he tells us that it was the Lord God who saves him. And then in verse 19, we see it's the Lord God who strengthens him. In other words, Habakkuk's confidence and Habakkuk's joy are tied to a God who will not, does not, and cannot fail him. You, have you ever thought about that? God will not. He does not. In fact, he cannot fail you. He is the Lord in all caps, as you see there, which means he's referring to Yahweh. He is the God of Israel. He's the one that the Bible says spoke and everything come in, came into existence. He's the one who, who makes everything, everything seen and unseen. He's the one who created heaven and earth. And he is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not fail. He's the God who saves. When Habakkuk uses this term, he's using it comprehensively. He's talking about the God who, who rescues him, the God who delivers him. In effect, Habakkuk says, God may not save the crops. God may not save the cattle. But God will save me. He will save me in spite of everything else that happens. That's the unfailing God that Habakkuk had his confidence in. Not only that, but he is the God that he's that Habakkuk says will strengthen him. Specifically, he says, the Lord will strengthen me. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And he will make me walk on my high hills. And some have talked about this as being that, that he's, God is going to be the one that, that strengthens Habakkuk to bring him up from the valley to the mountaintop experience so that he comes through it and he's, he's able to see everything more clearly. And that's, that's entirely possible. But others have pointed out, look, the mountainous areas where those deer climb, if you've ever watched them, they have very little small places that they can put their feet and it's very precarious and it's a lot of danger that's there. But it's God that strengthens those deer to be able to move through those, those difficult places and he will strengthen you to move through those places as well. I, I, I look at that as really being a both-and scenario. You see, sometimes God takes us out of the scenario that we find ourselves in and he, he moves us from it and sometimes He gives us the strength to walk through it. Either way, either way, God is the one who strengthens us. Now consider this. Everything that we're told in verse 17, everything we're told there is eclipsed by what we read in verses 18 and 19. 
Everything around us may fail, but God will never fail. He will save us. He will, he will strengthen us. And that brings me to the last hook. The last hook is this. I've already given you one of the words. You just didn't know it. The last two words are this, walking and singing. He strengthens us to walk, to walk on the high hills, to be able to navigate through the difficult circumstances in life. But he also, he also strengthens us to sing. That last phrase, to the choir master, to the chief musician, with my stringed instruments. I mentioned that this entire last chapter, all of chapter 3, is a psalm. It was a psalm designed to be sung. It was a, a, a song that was composed and written and put to music so that folks like you and I, particularly the Jews in, in Habakkuk's day, could sing this. It was a song that, that was there to teach them about the fact that they could be completely confident in God and His ability to save and His ability to strengthen. And that confidence, that, that even though faith is able to transform your sorrow into a stubborn and tenacious and rebellious and nevertheless joy. And that's what brings me to my sermon in a sentence, which admittedly is fairly simple in comparison to some of the ones that I write. But nevertheless, here we go. And even though faith in an unfailing God will produce within you a nevertheless joy. And even though faith in a God does not fail. Doesn't do anything wrong. Has never made a mistake. Even though faith in a God like that can produce within you a nevertheless joy that will not make sense to the world around you, and sometimes may not even make sense to you. But it will flat out let you know that your confidence is not in what's around you, but your confidence is in the one who sticks with you. Amen. Now, I want to make a point in my closing time, and you can choose to say, well, he was, he was right about this, or you can, you can toss it. And either way, it's going to be fine. It's, it's just, let me just tell you up front, it's going to be fine. But I said, I believe this is a song that was meant to be sung. It was a song that I believe was put to music and sung by many of Habakkuk's fellow Jews. I don't know how long. As I said, I believe he lived. We don't know exactly. We do not know exactly when Habakkuk lived, and we do not know exactly how he kept. We don't know anything about Habakkuk except what we read in this book. But my thought is, is that Habakkuk was able to write this and compose it and that it was able to be put to music and that many Jews began to be able to sing this song. And here's the reason why I think that. Because later those Chaldeans and Babylonians did invade Judah. And they slaughtered people. And they, they ravaged the land. Families were just 
devastated. Lives were demolished. People were taken captive. They were dragged by fish hooks back from the land of Judah to the land of Babylon. It was a horrible thing, and you can read about it in the book of Lamentations. And here's why I say that I believe this song may have been sung by many of them because you see, after that took place, three of those folks that were taken back to the land of Babylon were named Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in Genesis chapter 3, we read that Nebuchadnezzar declared that all the people in the land of Babylon, whenever the trumpet blew and whenever the horn sounded, that everyone in Babylon had to bow down in obeisance and in worship to the idol that he had created. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we will not do so. Their hearts were in tune with who God was, the God of Israel, the God who was their God, and they refused to bow down. Their confidence was in Him. And they said, we will not bow down before Him. And so Nebuchadnezzar grabbed them up and had them stood before this furnace that he heated to seven times its normal hotness. I don't know what word is supposed to go there, but fill in the blank. It's some, it was seven times as hot as it should have been. And he says, I'm going to give you one last chance. Listen to what they said to him in Daniel chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16, they said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, adversative conjunction. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Do you know what these young men had? They had even though faith. They had even though faith. Even the, hey, look, even if you throw us in this, even if you do, what happens when your what-ifs in life turn into the this is what you have? That's where the, even if, even though they had even though faith in an unfailing God, he will deliver us out of your hand. Even, whether he does it through the fiery furnace or whether he takes us out of it one other way, we're not going to be under your jurisdiction any longer. We have an even though faith in an unfailing God. And you know what that did? That produced within them the ability to live obediently and dare I say, allowed them to experience nevertheless joy. How did they come to that? They were thousands of miles from home. They were in a foreign country with a foreign government. Nobody would have known what they would have done. They could have just lived it and, and kept to themselves. Why did they not do that? Why did they not bow in, in obedience to that idol? Could it be because of this psalm? Could it be because of this hymn that they had been taught by their parents to sing? And the other hymns that they had in the Psalter? Could it be that they were raised in the land of Judah and that God allowed them to go to the land of Babylon so that they could stand as a testimony to who God was in the land of Babylon? I believe that's absolutely a possibility. 
Here's what I know. You don't have to take that. That doesn't, that doesn't matter one way or the other. But here's what I do know. When Nebuchadnezzar threw those three young men in the fiery furnace, he peered inside and he saw not three men, but four. And he says, lo and behold, I believe that fourth one looks like the Son of God. And so you know what happened? God gave those men the strength to go through that fiery furnace because he gave them of himself. And he promises all who are his, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. I am a God who will not fail you. And that brings me back full circle to where we started today. I began this sermon by reminding you that love truly is a love that sacrifices itself. And Jesus Christ giving himself on the cross for you and for me is the greatest expression of love that you and I will ever witness. And because he has done that, those who place their full faith in him and their trust in him can be assured that no matter what happens to them, no matter what road they find themselves on, they can know that he will never leave them or forsake them. He will save them. He will strengthen them to walk in obedience. And he will give them a song to sing to the nations and to the generations behind them. Even though faith in an unfailing God will produce a nevertheless joy. And I want you to know there is not a single one of us in this room who will not go through life facing trouble and hardship. Even so. God will never fail you. And you can rejoice in the relationship you have with him through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Now I want us to close in prayer, but I'm going to do things just a little different today. There was a prayer that I came across this week from another pastor who wrote the prayer out and then read it for his congregation, read it over them. I want to do the same for you. I want to read that prayer. So I'm going to ask if you would to bow your head and close your eyes and consider this as our benediction this morning. Father, because the gospel is true and because you have given Jesus as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins, because you have robed us in his righteousness and adopted us into your family and made us citizens of heaven, we can trust you. And we will rejoice in you. It's not that hard things don't hurt. It's not that we won't feel sad and mad, confused and alone. But we will trust you, Father. Even though the doctor's report says the cells are malignant, we will nevertheless rejoice in you. Even though our children still think our faith is silly, the Bible is fable and life is futile. We will nevertheless rejoice in you. Even though our pastor fails us, our co-worker slanders us, or our friend betrays us, we will nevertheless rejoice in you. Even though our church, our company, our investments decrease, while everybody else's increase, we nevertheless will rejoice in you. Even though the house contract falls through or our spouse 
loses their job or our insurance doesn't cover an accident, we nevertheless will rejoice in you. Even though it rains on our daughter's wedding, our son gets kicked out of college or there's a sinkhole in our front yard, we nevertheless will rejoice in you. You are at work in all things, at all times, no exceptions. And you do that for your glory and our good. So Father, you are our strength and Jesus is our righteousness. So it is to you that we pray, it is in you that we trust, and it is in you that we rejoice. In the exalted and trustworthy name of Jesus, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen.